Hi, I'd like to dedicate this reading to three people. One to Ivan Ilagin, who was uh, an excellent Russian emigre poet and who was my teacher at University of Pittsburgh uh, from 1969 to 1974. Um, secondly, to the memory of Kimberly Schreiber, who was the assistant director of the Middle East Studies Center and who offered me my first poetry reading at OSU. And lastly, to my son Kenny, who is competing tonight in the National Poetry Out Loud competition at Columbus Alternative High School. Uh, the first poet I'm going to read from is probably the most famous Russian poet of all. Every young child in Russia can quote from this poet. His name is Alexander Pushkin. Pushkin was born in, in 1799 and is considered the greatest of all Russian writers. A development can be traced from the sparkling ebullience of his early verse to the concentrated expressiveness and restrained power of his later poetry. By effecting a new synthesis between three main ingredients of the Russian literary idiom, the church Slavonic, the Western European borrowings, and the spoken vernacular, Pushkin created the language of modern Russian poetry. The first poem I'd like to read is called I Loved You. Uh, it bears all the hallmarks of Pushkin's lyric style, lack of ornaments, melodious tone, and above all, harmonious restraint. I'll read first a, a metric translation by Walter Arndt and then follow that with the original in Russian so that you can hear the music of his poetry. Now, this poem was written in 1829. I loved you, and the feeling why deceive you may not be quite extinct within me yet. But do not let it any longer grieve you. I would not ever have you grieve or fret. I loved you not with words or hope, but merely by turns with bashful and with jealous pain. I loved you as devotedly, as dearly, as may God grant you to be loved again. And now the Russian. Я вас любил. Любовь ещё быть сможет душе моей угасла не совсем. Но пусто на вас больше не тревожит. Я не хочу печалить вас ничем. Я вас любил, безмолвно, без надежды, то робостью, то ревностью тамим. Я вас любил так искренно, так нежно, что дай вам Бог любимый быть другим. Um, the second poem I would like to read, also by Pushkin, uh, is the prologue from one of his long narrative poems. He wrote several of these also wrote uh, poetic versions of fairy tales. Um, this is from his very famous narrative poem, The Bronze Horseman. Uh, I'm quoting from Walter Arndt's Pushkin Threefold. Uh, this poem was completed in 1833 and published in 1837, the year of Pushkin's death. The prologue, with its celebrated accolade to St. Petersburg, homage to Peter I, is intriguingly at odds with the import of the poem as a whole. The setting and part of this symbolic energizer of the poem on its historic philosophical plane is the Great Flood of the Neva River in 1824. The title refers to the larger-than-life bronze equestrian statue of Peter, which is still in St. Petersburg today. And this is another metric translation by Walter Arndt. 
Prologue to the Bronze Horseman. Upon a shore of desolate waves stood he, with lofty musings grave and gazed afar. Before him spreading rolled the broad river, empty save for one lone skiff, stream downward heading. Strewn on the marshy, moss-grown bank, rare huts, the fins poor shelter, shrank. Black smudges from the fog protruding, beyond dark forest ramparts drank the shrouded sun's rays and stood brooding and murmuring all about. Here, Swede, beware, he thought, soon by our labor here a new city shall be wrought. Defiance to the haughty neighbor, here we at nature's own behest shall break a window to the west. Stand planted on the ocean level, here flags of foreign nations all. By waters new to them will call, and unencumbered we shall revel. A century passed. And there shone forth from swamps and gloomy forest prison, crown gem and marvel of the north, the proud young city newly risen, where Finnish fishermen before harsh nature's wretched waif was plying, forlorn upon that shallow shore his trade, with brittle net gear trying uncharted tides, now bustling banks stand serried in well-ordered ranks, of palaces and towers converging from the four corners of the earth, Sails pressed to seek the opulent berth, to anchorage and squadrons merging. Nearby is cased in granite clean. Atop its waters, bridges hover. Between its channels, gardens cover the river isles with darkling green. Outshone old Moscow had to render the younger sister pride of place, as by a new queen's fresh-blown splendor in purple fades her dowager grace. I love thee, Peter's own creation. I love thy stern and comely face, Nirva's majestic perfluctation, her bankment's granite carapace, the patterns laced by iron railing, and of thy meditative night, the lucent dusk, the moonless paling, when in my room I read and write, lampless and street on street stand dreaming, vast luminous gulfs and slimly gleaming the admiralty's needle bright. And rather than let darkness smother the lustrous heaven's golden light, one twilight glow speeds on the other to grant but half an hour tonight. I love thy winter's fierce embraces that leaves the air chilled and hushed. The sleighs by broad Neva, girls' faces more brightly than the roses flushed. The ballrooms sparkle, noise and chatter. And at the bachelor's rendezvous, the foaming beakers hiss and spatter the flaming punches flickering blue. I love the verve of drilling duty upon the playing field of Mars, where troops of riflemen and horse turn massed precision into beauty, where laureled flags in tattered streams above formations finely junctured, and brazen helmets sway and gleam in storied battles scarred and punctured. I love, war queen, thy fortress pieces in smoke and thunder booming forth when the imperial spouse increases the sovereign lineage of the north, or when their muzzles roar in token of one more Russian victory, or scenting spring, Neva with glee, her ice-blue armor newly broken, and sparkling flows runs out to sea. Thrive, Peter's city, flaunt thy beauty, stand like unshaken Russia fast, till floods and storms from chafing duty may turn to peace with thee at last. The very tides of Finland's deep their long-pent rancor then may bury, 
and cease with feckless spite to harry Tsar Peter's everlasting sleep. I'm going to move along to a slightly more contemporary poet, uh, Mikhail Lermitov, who's my personal favorite. Lermitov was born in 1895 and killed in a duel in 1925. He's considered the greatest of all Russian Romantic poets. His lyrics rank second only to his predecessor, Pushkin. Lermitov took his poetic inspiration from such European masters as Byron and Goethe. Unlike Pushkin, his verses are impetuous and full of unrestrained emotions. The singularly melodic character of Lermontov's poetry rendered it extremely appealing to composers. Tchaikovsky especially set many of Lermontov's works to music. I've chosen two contrasting poems. Uh, one is uh, Lermontov's Angel, uh, and then the other is a portion of his narrative poem, The Demon. Uh, I'll read a non-metric translation of the angel and then in the original Russian to demonstrate the musical character of his verse. <clears throat> this is the angel. An angel was flying through the midnight sky and softly he sang. And the moon and the stars and the clouds in a throng hearkened to that holy song. He sang of the bliss of innocent spirits in the shades of the garden of paradise. He sang of the great God and his praise was unfeigned. In his arms he carried a young soul destined for the world of sorrow and tears. And the sound of his song stayed, wordless but alive, in the young soul. And for a long time it languished in the world, filled with a wonderful longing. And the earth's tedious songs could not replace for it the sounds of heaven. <clears throat> and then this is in Russian, Angel. Pod niebu polunoczu angel i ciel, i tichuju piesnju on piel, i mesici zvjozdi i tuči talpoj v ni mali toj piesni svetoj. On pielo blaženstvje bez grešnik duhov pod kuščami rajskih sadov. A bog je velikom on piel, i hvala je bo ni pritvorna bila. On dušu mladuju v objatjah njozdja mira pičali i sljoz, now, I'm not going to read you in Russian the demon because it's a little bit longer. Um, this uh, portion of the demon is a fragment of a longer story poem uh, in the colorful, set in the Caucasus Mountains, uh, which is where uh, Lermontov placed a lot of his stories and poems. Uh, the demon is a Luciferian figure reminiscent of Milton's fallen angel, and he's attempting to seduce an innocent maiden, sort of in the Faustian motif, uh, Tamara. This particular excerpt is the demon's volatile protestation of love to the Caucasian girl in which he offers her all of the delights of the universe should she submit to his desire. This is the demon's speech to Tamara from the demon. I swear by the first day of creation, I swear by its last day, I swear by the infamy of crime and by the triumph of eternal truth. I swear by the bitter torments of the fall, by the short-lived dream of victory, 
I swear by my meeting with you and by our impending separation. I swear by the assembly of spirits, brethren whom faith has subjected to me, by the swords of the passionless angels, my ever watchful enemies. I swear by heaven and by hell, by all that is sacred on earth, and by you, I swear by your last glance, by your first tear, by the breath of your gentle lips, by the silken wave of your curly hair, I swear by bliss and by suffering, I swear by my love, I have renounced my old revenge, I have renounced my proud thoughts. Henceforth the poison of insidious temptation will trouble no more the minds of men. I want to make my peace with heaven. I want to love and to pray. I want to believe in good. With tears of repentance I will efface the marks of celestial fire from my brow, now worthy of you. And let the world in peaceful ignorance end its life without me. Oh, believe me, I alone so far have understood and appreciated you. Having chosen you for my hallowed shrine, I have laid down my power at your feet. I await your love as a gift, and in exchange for a single moment, I will give you eternity. In love as an enmity, believe me, Tamara, I am a faithful and great. I, the free son of ether, will take you to the spheres that lie beyond the stars, and you shall be the queen of the world, my first companion. You will look without regret or concern at the earth, where there is no true happiness, no lasting beauty. Oh, leave your former desires and the pitiful world till its fate. In exchange, I will reveal to you the abyss of proud knowledge. I will bring the host of my attendant spirits to your feet. I will give you, O beautiful one, airy and magic handmaidens. I will pluck for you the golden crown of the eastern star and will sprinkle it with dew, which I will take from the flowers at midnight. I will wind a ray of rosy sunset like a ribbon round your waist. I will imbue the air around you with a breath of pure fragrance. I will ceaselessly charm your ear with marvelous music. I will build splendid palaces of turquoise and amber. I will plunge to the bottom of the sea. I will fly above the clouds. I will give you everything the earth has to offer. Love me. Now we'll move out of the romantic into the more contemporary. Um, many of you may have heard of Boris Pasternak. You know of Dr. Zhivago. From the beginning of Russian poetry, I'll jump ahead to him. Born in 1890, Boris Pasternak occupies a peculiar position in the annals of Soviet poetry. I quote from the Penguin Book of Russian Verse, Pasternak's first volume of verse was published in 1914. His most productive period as a poet lies between 1917, the year of the revolution, and 1922. Though he was in close touch with several of the poetical movements of the time, he identified himself with none of them. He frequently attached for his he was attacked for his alleged indifference to current social and political problems. He was yet one of the most influential poets of the Soviet period. In 1946, in response to a violent onslaught on writers declared to have deviated from the official doctrine, he stopped publishing new poetry, and for eight years, and in the last years of his life, having preserved his artistic integrity to the end, he survived to see several new collections of his verse containing many masterpieces. 
and including the poems which form part of his great novel, Dr. Zhivago, published and acclaimed abroad before his death in 1960. Um, the first, I guess I'm going to read one poem so I can get these all in. I'm going to read um, a poem of his that calls to mind uh, the evenings in Dr. Zhivago, if you've seen the movie, where he's with his mistress uh, in a country, a country estate and the snow is covering it during the night. Uh, the title of the poem is Winter Night. And once again, this is a non-metric translation. Snow swept over the whole earth, swept it from end to end. The candle burned on the table, the candle burned. Like a swarm of midges in summer flying toward a flame, the snowflakes outside flew in swarms to the window. The snowstorm modeled circles and arrows on the window. The candle burned on the table, the candle burned. Shadows fell on the brightly lit ceiling, crossed hands, crossed legs, crossed destinies. Two shoes fell to the floor with a thud, and wax dripped like teardrops from the nightlight onto the dress. And everything was lost in a gray-white snowy mist. The candle burned on the table. The candle burned. A draft from the corner blew at the candle's flame, and like an angel, the heat of temptation raised two wings in the form of a cross. The snow swept all through February. And many a time, the candle burned on the table. The candle burned. And for my last poet, I'm going to jump to Evgeny Evtushenko, who is still alive uh, and is, in fact, teaching. Um, he teaches Russian uh, literature at, in Oklahoma. He has been to OSU uh, as recently as 1998 and read his poetry. If you would like to hear him read in the original, the Slavic Center has a video of him doing so. Um, a little bit about him. He, he was born in Irkutsk uh, to a family of Ukrainian exiles, and he moved to Moscow as a boy. Um, his first important poem was published in 1956. Um, in 1961, he published Babi Yar, in which he attacked Soviet indifference to the Nazi massacre of the Jews in Kiev in September 41. Despite its immense popularity, the poem was not printed in Russia until 1984. In the same year he released Babiar, he also published The Heirs of Stalin, claiming the legacy of Stalinism still dominated the country. Published originally in Pravda, the poem was only republished a quarter of a century later under the more, leadership, uh, the more um, liberal leadership of Gorbachev. In 1963, Yevdushenko, already an international literary sensation, was banned from traveling outside the Soviet Union. The ban was lifted in 1965. In the 70s, Yevdushenko was closely associated with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the dissident writer. Nevertheless, when he was made an honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, there was a flurry of protest led by Joseph Brodsky, who won a Nobel Prize in Literature, who complained that Yevtushenko's attacks on the Soviet Union were launched only at the directions of the party. In the post-Soviet era, Yevtushenko has been active promoting former dissident poets, environmental causes, and the memory of victims of the Soviet gulags. And the poem which my son picked for me to read out of all of these is a poem called To You, the People. Along ulitsas, streets, rue, and along Calais, you are walking after work, pushing one another, 
I am joining you and don't repent of it. You've become weary. You've become nervy. You've grubbed me down into the bowels of the earth. You've reached up to the stars. But it seems to me you still haven't begun to exist. In your lips is a camel, a gitana, a novice. And each of you is like a separate novel, a separate heart, a separate conscience. Under every beret, cap, sombrero, there is a separate measure for the immeasurable world, separating beliefs into separate compartments. But as you drink your absinthe, your vodka, your Chianti, just for a moment you cease to be separate and become mankind in your own eyes. So you can love one another, unite your separate novels into a common novel, your separate consciences into a common conscience. I would like to predict all this for you, and in this prediction, not discredit all that I would like to strengthen in life. No, I am not begging to be a prophet or a judge, but you must forgive me if, like a boar, I keep on nagging and repeating to you the people, we are people, we are people, we are people. We argue, grumbling and snapping. At times we jealously trample on one another. But our separateness, as you know, is false in general. We the people don't exist separately. By forgetting others, you forget yourself. By killing others, you kill yourself. If Dr. Brintlinger isn't here yet, I can read some more. No? I have almost 20, almost 3.30, but I can read. I left out some stuff. <laughs> Sure. I have another poem by Yevtushenko that I liked um, called Autumn. Inside me the season is autumn. The chill is in me. You can see through me and I am sad but not altogether cheerless and filled with humility and goodness. But if I rage sometimes... Then I am the one whose rage is shedding my leaves. And the simple thought comes sadly to me that raging isn't really what is needed. <clears throat> the main need is that I should be able to see myself and the struggling, shocked world in autumnal nakedness when even you and the world can be seen right through. Flashes of insight are the children of silence. It doesn't matter if we don't rage aloud. We must calmly cast off all mere noise in the name of the new foliage. Something has apparently happened to me, and I am relying on nothing but silence. When the leaves laying themselves one on another inaudibly become the earth. And you can see it all, as if from a height, when you can shed your leaves at the right time, when without passion, inner autumn lays its airy fingers on your forehead. I was going to say, hopefully, if you were inspired by the Russian poets or would like to know, uh, to have a sort of a different idea of them, you can come and see us at the Slavic Center. We're in 303 Oxley Hall. We have videos of Pasternak, Pasternak translated Shakespeare into Russian. And we have two films of Shakespeare made by the Russians with his translations. Um, we also have Dr. Zhivago, and we also have 
Yevtushenko reading his own poetry. And I see that Dr. Brittlinger is here. for the recording, right? Okay, he's hearing me. Good. All right. So what I wanted to do, I was just going to read you a little bit. I thought that if Marianne was reading poetry, it would be nice if I read prose. Um, this uh, author, Vladislav Hadesevich, was a poet um, who lived in Russia and emigrated to Europe after the Soviet Union, uh, after it became clear to him that life in the Soviet Union wasn't going to be that fun. Um, he moved to Berlin and Paris, and when he was in Paris, he uh, wrote the biography of an 18th century poet. He was thinking back to how, in what he considered to be the healthy times of uh, the Russian Empire, under Catherine the Great, poets were able to find a role in government life. Now. 18th century poetry is a very different game than 20th century poetry, and Hedesevich understood that perfectly well, but he also saw um, that what he felt was the twilight of Russian culture was happening. The twilight of European culture really was things, something that people were talking about in the 1920s, that no longer was culture going to flower as it had in earlier days. And he thought back to Dojavan, and he tried to think about ways in which... Um, Poets and uh, government officials like Catherine the Great uh, worked together. Dojavan wrote poetry to Catherine, was sometimes accused of being a flatterer, but tried to convince her of her role as an enlightener, um, as an enlightened czar. At any rate, so I've recently translated this biography. It's coming out in the fall with the University of Wisconsin Press, and in fact, a little translation, the translation of the end of chapter 9 came out in the Antioch Review this winter. Um, so I'm going to read to you just a tiny section in Russian from uh, the end of that biography, and then I'll read you my translation as well. Okay. This is um, uh, 
1816. Oh, and on the back of the handout, you'll see that I have two illustrations for you. One of them is Zvan Kadirjavan's estate where he died, um, and the other is uh, a, an illustration of the funeral procession, which is part of what I'll read to you. This is 1816. He has left Petersburg. He's not feeling very well. He's a very old man, and uh, he's living with his family on his estate, um, and he becomes ill. В исходе второго часа, когда Дарья Алексеевна удалилась на время, и в спальне остались только параши с доктором, который совсем растерялся и не знал, что делать, Державин вдруг захрипел, перестал стонать, и все смокло. Параша долго прислушивалась, не издаст ли он еще вздоха. Действительно, вскоре он приподнялся и глубоко, протяжно вздохнул. Опять наступила тишина, и Параша спросила, Дышит ли он еще? Посмотрите сами, ответил Максим Фомич и протянул ей руку. Протянул ей руку Державина. Пульса не было. Параша приблизила губы к его губам и уже не почувствовала дыхания. В три часа утра, когда солнце уже вставало и пробуждались птицы, и легкий туман еще покрывал поля, и Волхов, казалось, остановился в своем течении. Дарья Алексеевна и Параши вошли в пустой кабинет Державина. Там, в дневном свете, горела еще свеча его рукою зажженная, лежало платье, скинутое им с вечера. Молитвенник был раскрыт на той странице, где остановилось его чтение. Параша взяла аспидную доску, на ней было начало оды. Река времен в своем стремлении уносит все дела людей и топит в пропасти забвений народа, царства и царей. А если что и остается через звуки лиры и трубы, то вечности жерлом пожрется, и общий не уйдет судьбы. Только это и было написано. Восемь всего стихов, но все в них величественно и прочно, как в славнейших лодах Державина. И в то же время так просто, как он не писывал еще никогда. Жизнь со всеми ее утехами он всегда любил и того не стыдился. Хотел устроить ее к благу, личному и общественному, ради чего и работал, не покладая рук. Но еще в ту пору, когда при Читалагайской коре рождалась его поэзия, он был пронзен мыслью о непрочности жизни. О, мавтерпи, дрожайшей мавтерпи, как мала есть наша жизнь, и что только ты родился, как уже рок дня того, лечет тебя к разрушающей ночи. Нет на свете ничего надежного, даже и самые наивеличайшие царства, суть играющие непостоянство. Терзаемся беспрестанно хотением и теряемся в ничтожестве. Все есть предел нашей жизни. Его эпоха на каждом шагу давала поводы к размышлениям такого рода. От смерти Мещерского до падения Наполеона он не переставал твердить о минутности дел человеческих. Не было, следовательно, ничего, общ... ничего нового в первом четверостище его предсмертных стихов. Но было кое-что новое во втором. Он любил историю и поэзию, потому что в них видел победу над временем. В поэзии сам был отчасти историком. На будущего историка своей жизни взирал с, двори, с доверием. 
не зря на колесо веселых мрачных дней, на возвышение, на понижение счастья. Единой правдой у меня в умах людей через клеи воскресишь согласие. Бессмертие поэтическое, вера он еще тверже, и многократно высказывал эту веру, подчас даже с некоторым упрямством, не без задора. Врагов моих червь кости сгложит, а я пить и не умру. В могиле буду я, но буду говорить. Стихи о реке, времени, а, стихи о реке времен писал он 6 июля, и, вероятно, тогда не думал что только два дня отделяют его от смерти. Но он знал, что дотаскивает последние деньги. Время для него кончалось. Он задумался о том, что будет, когда оно вообще кончится. И ангел, поклявшись, что времени больше не будет, вырвет трубу из клиенных рук и сам вострубить. И мирного голоса мельпоменой не станет слышно. История и поэзия способны побеждать время. Но лишь во времени, жерлом вечности, пожрутся и они сами. Тут отказывался Державин от мечты, утешавший его всю жизнь. Отсюда и обнаженная простота его предсмертной строфы. Все прикрасы как бы совлечены с нее вместе с надеждой. Стихи были только начаты, но их продолжение угадать нетрудно. Отказываясь от исторического бессмертия, Державин должен был обратиться к мысли о личном бессмертии в Боге. Он нашел последнюю из своих религиозных од, но ее уже не закончил. Бог было его первое слово, произнесенное им в младенчестве, еще без мысли, без разумения. А Боге была его последняя мысль, для которой он уже не успел найти слов. 10 июля приехали из Петербурга племянники Семен Капнист с Александром Николаевичем Лвовым. Они-то и взяли на себя все заботы о похоронах. Замечательно, что неизменная твердость Дарьи Алексеевны на сей раз ее покинула. Кажется, она даже не имела мужества взглянуть на покойника. Во всяком случае, она не присутствовала ни на панхидах, ни при выносе. От потрясения она слегла. Ее перевели во второй этаж. Племянницы находились при ней почти безотлучно. Решение было хоронить Державана в Хутенском монастыре, который так ему нравился, куда он ездил к Евгению. 11 числа вечером привезли из Новгорода все необходимое. Тело было положено в гроб, и тогда же отслужена последняя панихида. Параша хотела проводить печальное шествие хоть до лодки, которая повезет тело в Хутын. Но Дарья Алексеевна взяла с нее обещание остаться в комнатах. Была уже полночь, когда Параша пришла с панихидой. Вдруг внизу раздалось похоронное пение. Гроб только что понесли, и это пение в полголоса походило скорее на протяжные стоны, которых, может быть, не было бы и слышно, если бы не тишина, наступившая во всем доме. Параша бросилась запирать двери, чтобы Дарья Алексеевна ничего не услышала. Потом, подойдя к окну, она увидала внизу толпу людей с фонарями. Не все гроб на головах, они стали спускаться с горы. Ясно светились широкие серебряные галуны на гробе, который все удалялся и, наконец, донесен был до лодки. 
черном Волхове отражались звезды июльского неба. На носу поместились певчие, на корме пред налоем Саламши читал молитвой. Малиновый гроб был поставлен на катафалке, воздвинутом посредине лодки. Черный балади, бал, балдахин колыхался над катафалком. По углам стояли четыре тяжелые свечи в церковных подсвечниках. Лодка шла бичевою, за ней следовала другая с провожатым. Ночь была так тиха, что свечи горели во все время плавания. Funeral procession, and because Hadesevich uh, himself uh, is a poet, he is imposing a a reading on Dejavan's last poem that kind of sums up this entire biography. What he has seen as the lines connecting Dejavan's life, uh, which includes um, Dejavan's ideas about history and about his place in history and about God. So uh, he's ill. He's um, uh, they're writing a letter to Petersburg. It's the middle of the night. Near two o'clock, when Darya Alexeyevna, his wife, had retired for a time and only Parasha and the doctor, who had completely lost his head and did not know what to do, remained in the bedroom, Dejavin suddenly wheezed and stopped moaning, and it was quiet. Parasha listened closely for a long time to see whether he would give another sigh, and indeed soon he raised himself up and took a deep, long breath. Silence fell again, and Parasha asked, Is he still breathing? Have a look, answered Maxim Famich, and stretched Dejavan's arm out to her. There was no pulse. Parasha brought her lips to his and could no longer feel any breath. At 3 a.m., when the sun was already beginning to rise, remember, it's, winter, it's uh, summer in the north, right? So the sun is coming up. And the birds were awakening and a light fog still covered the fields and the Volkhov, it seemed, had stopped in its current. Darya Alexeyevna and Parasha entered Dejavin's empty study. A candle lit by his hand still burned in the daylight and the clothing he had discarded the evening before was lying about. The prayer book was open to the page where he had stopped reading. Parasha took up the slate board and on it was the beginning of an ode. Relentless river, coursing ages, usurps all works of mortal hands. It sinks all worlds in darkness rages. Naught shall be saved, not kings nor lands. Should any trace endure an hour through lyre's cord or trumpet's call, obscured, it drowns by time devoured, purged of its form, the fate of all. This is all that was written, only eight lines, but they are as majestic and forceful as Dejavan's most glorious odes, and at the same time, more simple than anything he had ever written before. He had always loved life with all its pleasures, and he was never ashamed of this fact. He wanted to arrange things for the best, both for his own good and for the good of society, and he worked tirelessly toward this goal. But back at the time when his poetry was being born near Mount Chitilagai, he had been struck by the fragility of life. Oh, Mopertui, dearest Mopertui, how insignificant is our life. You are only just born and already day's destiny draws you toward destroying night. Nothing on earth is steadfast. Even the greatest sardoms are the plaything of inconstancy. We suffer interminably from desire and we are lost in nothingness. This is the limit 
of our life. At every step, his era gave cause for thoughts like these. From the death of Mischerski to Napoleon's attack, he continued to speak of the ephemeral quality of human actions. Thus, there was nothing new in the first quatrain of his dying verses. But there was something new in the second. He loved history and poetry because he saw in them a victory over time. He himself was something of a historian in his own poetry, and he trusted the future historian of his life. You, marking not the turn of woeful days and blithe, nor yet the rise and fall of fortune gained or squandered, you shall my name within the hearts of men revive with truth alone through Cleo's accord. He believed even more ardently in poetic immortality, and he asserted this belief repeatedly, sometimes even with a certain obstinacy and not without passion. The worms will clean my enemy's bones, I will not die, for I'm a poet, and even from the grave I'll speak. He wrote the verses about the river of time on July 6th, and he could not have known that only two days lay between him and death. But he did realize that he was living out his last days. For him, time was coming to an end. He began to think about what would happen when it ended altogether. And the angel, swearing that there will be no more time, tore the trumpet from Cleo's hands and sounded the call himself, drowning out the lyrical voice of Melpamine. History and poetry are capable of triumphing over time, but only within time. They too will be devoured by eternity. In this poem, Dejavin was giving up the dream that had comforted him all his life. Hence the naked simplicity of the last stanza before his death. All embellishments were removed from it, along with all hope. The poem was only just begun, but it is easy to guess its continuation. In refusing historical immortality, Dejavin must have been turning to thoughts of individual immortality in God. He had begun the last of his religious odes, but he would not complete it. As an infant, before thought, before comprehension, the first word he pronounced was God. His last thought, for which he didn't have time to find words, was also about God. On the 10th of July, his nephews, Semyon Kapnist and Alexander Nikolaevich Lvov, arrived from Petersburg. They took all the arrangements for the funeral upon themselves. It is worth noting that Daria Alexeyevna's usually unfaltering will failed her. It seems she did not even have the strength to look upon the deceased. At any rate, she was not present, either at the requiem service or at the carrying out of the body. She took to her bed from shock, and they moved her to the second floor. Her nieces were at her side almost constantly. It was decided to bury Dejavin at the Hutin Monastery, which he admired so much when he had visited Yevgeny there. On the 11th, in the evening, everything necessary was brought from Novgorod. The body was put into the coffin, and the final requiem was sung. Parasha wanted to accompany the sad procession at least as far as the boat that would take the body to Hutin, but Darya Alexeyevna made her promise to stay inside. When Parasha returned from the requiem, it was already midnight. Suddenly, from below, the funeral chanting could be heard. They had just begun to carry out the body. The hushed singing resembled long, drawn-out groans, which perhaps would not have been audible if not for the stillness that reigned over the house itself. 
Parasha rushed to close the doors so the Dalai would not hear anything. Then, approaching the window, she saw a crowd of people with lanterns. Carrying the coffin above their heads, they began to descend the hill. The wide silver galloons on the coffin shone clearly as it moved further and further away and finally reached the boat. The black Volkhov reflected the stars of the July sky. The choristers settled in the bow, while in the stern the sexton read prayers from a lectern. The crimson coffin was placed on a cattle falc, erected in the middle of the boat, a black canopy swaying above it. In the corners stood four thick candles in candlesticks from the church. The boat moved through the water, and another followed it. The night was so still that during the entire trip, the candles continued to burn. That's the end of the book. So now you know the ending. Thank you. I, I did want to, I, this is, you know, in Xeroxing it's never good, but I'm hoping that the illustrations will come out nicer. These are old engravings and watercolors, um, old watercolors from, uh, of Zvanka, which is this lovely house up on a hill on the Volkhov River. Um, and then, uh, and then this is the cattle falcon and, and, and the candles and so on of the funeral procession. Thank you.